Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. This is Andrea Schwartz with the Out of the Question podcast on March 8th, 2019, and I'm with my co-host, Reverend Steve Macias. Good evening, Andrea. So our question is, do you long for the good old days? So there is a question behind that question. What do you think it is? Everybody who thinks that we came from the the good old days and that we need to go back to that. And why don't we just return to the times that were simpler and the times that were easier for our families and our lifestyles? Very few people realized how sanitized history really is. I was talking to someone recently about George Washington leading the various militias during the beginning of the War of Independence. And how many history books will tell you that there was a real issue with a lot of the uh, soldiers visiting brothels and it was a real it was a real issue for the army in terms of discipline and illness and everything else. But we like to think that this was a time where everybody was totally motivated by, you know, goodness and, and justice. And a lot of people were in the service for any number of reasons. Some we know had some good intentions and wanted to see the yoke of the British come off. But a lot of people were not your most upstanding citizens. It's so easy to say, why can't we have a a population like we had during colonial times? Well, it wasn't all that clean all the time. We even do that not just for the history of hundreds of years ago, but we often have this type of longing back, looking back in our own relationships and our own marriages and our view of the church. And I think that what we need to look at is not only are those imperfections part of the history, but that those imperfections are part of God's sanctification and they give us some lessons for us today. I think for a lot of people, the good old days, simpler times had a lot to do when they were children and didn't have the responsibility of a family or supporting themselves, didn't understand what the issues that were going on in the world in terms of politics or in terms of how the culture was trending. And yeah, we didn't have social media and we didn't have mass media. So in some regards, there was less infection available, but it's not like sin didn't exist. And a lot of times, again, we find this looking back to the past as a way for us to escape, like you said, responsibility. Uh, It's an escapism out of our call and really the hard work that exists in the present. It's very easy to lean back in our chair, reminisce on something that we can speculate on than having to face the the plow before us and the present work before us. I remember one woman was lamenting about her grown children not coming back for the holidays, and she so wanted it to be the way it was. And I knew a lot more about this family than she maybe remembered that I knew. And I asked her, I said, tell me, was it ever great, really? I mean, having everybody at the dinner table, and she thought, and she said, no, it usually ended up in an argument. (laughs) 
I said, so you're remembering something that didn't happen. And she said, I, I guess, but I, w I really would have liked it to happen. And, uh, you know, life isn't a Hallmark movie. And if you watch too many of them, you can be lulled into thinking that's life. Right. And a lot of times we read our expectations uh, into our nostalgia. You know, before we got married, we thought our marriage was going to be cheery or, or rosy colored all these things you're describing. And sometimes when marriage gets difficult, when <laughs> finances are tight, when babies are crying, when bills are past due, we can, again, look to the good old days of being single or having no responsibilities uh, and forget what the blessing of marriage is and what loneliness it was being single. We allow our expectations to cloud uh, what the good old days actually were. And irresponsibility is something that fallen man will naturally lean towards. If it doesn't depend on you and you can go off and do your thing, well, that burden doesn't feel so heavy. But God doesn't call his people to shy away from burdens. He says, you have these burdens. I'll carry these burdens. And the way I will carry these burdens with you involves you being obedient and responding to the promptings of the Spirit not trying to run away and say, this isn't happening. That's really the call of the Christian is to start to build and to be constructive with our time today. And it's really the struggle that Christians have struggled throughout all of history, whether we're looking at historical figures or the church, it's very easy for us to look to the good old days. Maybe your good old days are the formation of the Bible Presbyterian church with Francis Schaeffer. Or maybe your good old days are the Westminster Divines in 1646. Or maybe your good old days are the Nicene Church. But every time period of the church is going to have these bumps and bruises and sores and festering heretics. It's going to have all of these imperfections. And what our kind of nostalgic view of history or, or our longing back for the better days is it tries to remove those imperfections from God's history. And I think a lot of us are motivated by the fact that we want to present a good view of the church or a good view of our church heroes. But when we don't pay attention to their mistakes or their blemishes, then we're then have unrealistic expectations of the church today. Exactly. If you're going to sanitize things, God could have left a lot of things and people out of the Bible. Samson is not exactly your role model for young men. Uh, in terms of how to pursue a godly wife. David, in terms of giving into his lust, but what makes both of these men, who we would call biblical figures we would look back to, is their repentance and their recognizing their sin as opposed to justifying it or ignoring it. That's right. So we, we see in the pictures of their failures an example for us because we are going to experience, if not the same, very similar temptations and struggles and failures. And so if we sanitize the 1950s or the 1550s or any generation, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. If we have this false rosy idea in our mind that marriages had no problems when moms didn't go to work or that marriages had no problems when the church was the center of society, then we're not actually helping our marriages today. We're just avoiding answering 
and helping through conflicts that will inevitably arise because they existed back in the good old days too. Right. And so how are we even going to define good? Is it good when you had to confront your own sin and come to terms with the fact that you were a rebel against God? I know that when um, I used to give my testimony at various churches and talk about my cult involvement, I had one woman who came up to me once and she said, oh my goodness, it must feel awful that your life was such a waste. Mm. This was one of the church ladies. I think she was actually the mother of the pastor. And for as little theology I had at the time, I looked at her and I said, oh no, that's what God used to bring me to himself. So I don't look at it as a failure. So yeah. the good old days for me are sometimes times that were very scary, very uncertain, but I was aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit as my family went through these things. I mean, look at the word remember throughout the Old Testament uh, given to the Israelites. Remember your time in Egypt. Remember the 40 days. Remember the Passover. Remember all of these things. Uh, there is some power, some faith in remembrance, even you. Our Lord Jesus gives us the command to remember, you know, we celebrate that every Sunday. But the remembering isn't just of just the good. It's remembering that whole struggle that made you and brought you out of what you were into who you are. And so this idea of remembering or the good old days has to be remembering the entire package. And I think that what we probably should do as Christians in our year 2019 is unpack those nostalgic views we have. Do we really think there was a good, good old days? Well, what if we look at those individual circumstances? Were they all good things? I mean, even something as simple as the internet um, today that's kind of taken over our life. You mentioned social media, but think of the good old days when uh, Christians of the 14th or 15th century couldn't access the scripture because a book was so expensive, right? They had a community in the church, but they didn't have access to something as simple as the Bible. Or uh, in the more recent history, goods and things purchased in the stores were much more expensive, but through the progress of, of the internet and what it's brought to us, we now have this uh, Amazon button in our bathroom that, <laughs> or our bedroom or anywhere in our house that can bring us a Bible or any good at a greatly reduced price the very next day, sometimes within hours. What was the good old days? So you have to really put it in perspective. Right. Which leads me to two essays written by Dr. Rush Dooney that are on this subject. One is actually, the first one is, how good were the good old days? And he had a really good pulse on the culture of his day. So this is how good were the good old days. We hear more than a little talk these days about urban pollution. The assumption in such discussions is that suddenly with the automobile, our good clean air was polluted. Now granted, our air needs cleaning up, but was it clean before? The horse in the days before the automobile was a remarkable polluter. In 1907, Milwaukee, for example, had 350,000 people. Horses provided transportation, and they daily left 133 tons of manure on the streets. Horses brought food into the city, and these horses left their calling cards everywhere. 
In the summer, the carriage wheels quickly turned the manure into dust, which floated in the air and into houses. If it rained when your wash was on the line, the manure dust in the air was drenched into your wash and ruined it. In the winter, snows and rain, the manure was turned into a splashing slush, which sometimes moved good people to profanity. In those days, a gentleman walked on the street side of the sidewalk in order to protect his lady from the splash of the manure slush. The manure carried disease and a breeze could bring tetanus and other spores everywhere. These were the good old days of epidemics of cholera, dysentery, infant diarrhea, smallpox, yellow fever, and typhoid. The automobile does some polluting, but it helped eliminate these deadly pollutants. Of course, the manure bred flies by the billions, and the sparrows multiplied into a national pest feeding on manure. In those days, it was difficult to enjoy a shade tree on a hot summer day because of the sparrow droppings. This is not all. Horses were mistreated and regularly dropped dead in the streets. In 1880, for example, New York had 15,000 dead horses left on the streets. As late as 1912, Chicago had 10,000 dead horses in the year. There were no license plates on the horses, so the owners could not be traced. Before the dead horses could be removed, the neighborhood dogs feasted on them and dragged bits and pieces into alleyways and backyards. In other words, the good old days were very polluted and, to put it plainly, more than a little stinky. Now, I'm all for good, clean air, but don't romanticize the past and don't overreact. We do need laws to protect ourselves from pollution, but perfection does not come overnight. Moreover, while technology is sometimes the offender, it has more often than not been an advantage in cleaning up the air and environment. Used wisely, it can further the work of conservation. In brief, if we have an unrealistic view of the past, we have an unrealistic view of the present. We then indulge in name-calling, not problem-solving. Instead of furthering progress and freedom, we hamper it. Very prophetic. Typical Rush Dooney, recognizing and turning that kind of on its ear. Right. And he has another essay where he talks about the very next one. And, and by the way, these come from uh, the collection of his radio addresses that were transcribed called Our Threatened Freedom. And you can hear how they were delivered when he delivered them on the Chalcedon site. If you just look up our Threatened Freedom audio album and you can hear them all, but they were compiled into a book. And so you can read them as well. But I think his point is a good one. We can look at progress as an enemy or we can look at progress as God's gift to us. Now, of course, everything has to be used lawfully. But to say that we should all go back to horse-drawn carriages, or as some politicians now are saying, we should give up air travel and not eat hamburgers and all sorts of nonsense, that's a reflection of no faith in the sovereign God who will preserve his world and his people. It's really important that we focus on what Rushduni is attacking here. You know, he's not being so single-minded that he's against any type of of progress or uh, any type of looking to the past for good things, he is attacking perfection. And what is really dangerous about our longing for the past is that we can set up little idols. Um, idols, as we read in this essay, 
of what was um, an Edenic period without pollution, but we can also create idols in people. You know, if we have no ability to see errors in George Washington or errors in Paul Revere or errors in any other of their church fathers, then we're creating little mini God men. And we're also telling our children and our community that those people were perfect and we could never do anything like them. And so we need to recognize that they were just people like you and me. Dr. Rushton was a, a normal guy, just like you and me and all the Christians who from St. Paul onwards strove for the kingdom had faults. And by recognizing those faults, we are telling our children and our parishioners that even though we sin, the kingdom of God has been entrusted to you and that the success of the kingdom doesn't depend on your sinlessness, but on your work, your effort, your faithfulness to that kingdom calling. And you had mentioned nostalgia earlier and how we look back with nostalgia and similar length. I'm going to read his essay, What's Wrong with Nostalgia? He says, when it comes to nostalgia, I plead not guilty. I want no part of it. I am sure there were a great many good things in the past, but I like today better and I shall enjoy tomorrow even more. I know we live in troubled times, and I expect very serious troubles in the years just ahead, but I believe that God is on the throne of the universe, and I like his government. One of the things which irks me every winter is the happy and silly nostalgia about horse-drawn sleighs. At Christmas, we hear about sleigh bells in the snow, Usually some magazine will include a romantic painting about happy singing people on a sleigh ride. I visited somebody who almost reverently showed me a recent buy, authentic sleigh bells. Now let me tell you the truth about sleighs. I know them firsthand from life in the high mountain country some years back. Sleighs are one of the most miserable ways to travel ever devised by man. Nothing can chill you more than a sleigh ride. You are open to the cold, freezing air, and it cuts you like a knife as you go dashing through the snow. You have a choice. If you go fast, the cold air cuts and chaps your face in a hurry and leaves you gasping for air. But the air is ice cold, and your breath leaves little icicles on your nose and eyebrows. If you go slow, then in spite of all your clothes and robes, you turn slowly into a human icicle, numb and cold. There is no hearty ho-ho-ho left in you. But there is much worse. Dragging a sleigh through and over snow-covered roads and fields is particularly hard work for the horses. Among other things, it makes the horses very gassy. As you handle the reins, your nose is on the same level as and directly behind the horse's rear ends. I leave the rest to your tender imagination. The one question in your mind is this, will I die of asphyxiation or will I freeze to death? There must be, you tell yourself, a less painful way to go. No, not nostalgia for me. Give me a good, well-heated automobile to drive with my wife by my side and I feel far more romantic and much more a free man than I ever felt in an ice-cold sleigh with my nose under a horse's rear end. I like progress. I want more of it. It gives me freedom, and I like freedom. I can feel very romantic about freedom. Freedom is the air I want to breathe. 
This is why I prefer the present and the future to the past. I want to make the present more free and the future a good and free one for my children and grandchildren. I cannot do so by perpetuating silly romantic myths about the past. For all our problems today, the preferred world for me is the here and now. This is where I am alive. I'm not sure I'll ever listen to jingle bells or sleigh bells ring <laughs> the same way. <laughs> well, and how he tastefully discusses uh, putting things behind him or behind the horse it reminded me of what St. Paul says, I believe it's in Philippians, about you know putting things behind you and pressing on forward. And that is kind of the perspective of many of the church uh, church fathers is that we have an anchor, right? We have a foundation in Jesus Christ and that he sends us then outwards. The apostles were never supposed to look back and try to get that rosy feeling of having the Last Supper again or, or walking with Jesus again. They went away from Jerusalem into the world. They moved from remembering the things that Christ taught to advancing the kingdom to come. I think one particularly uh, special Old Testament example that might be compared to nostalgia uh, might be the, the time that, that Lot and his wife are taken out of the city, right? They're taken out, driven, told not to look back, right? Looking back at that moment, at the city where their family was, at the city where their home was, probably where children were conceived, meals were made, there's probably lots of nostalgic things about the city of Sodom, right? Uh, watching your child's first steps right there in your front living room. And I can imagine Lot's wife, as they were escaping what was about to be the destruction of that city, looking back in nostalgia, trying to get one last peek of the past. What she completely missed was that the kingdom was not there in Sodom, but going in the other direction. I think those of us who are looking for the good old days in Christianity or in America or in our culture, our families, we're doing that same type of mistake as Lot's wife. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I think it's coincidental that uh, a lot of evangelicals, when they talked about what they want to return to, oftentimes you hear them say, why can't we return to like the America of the 50s? Well, interestingly enough, America of the 50s is when television showed up on the scene and the families that were depicted in a lot of television programs weren't actually authentic families. As a matter of fact, that's where the dumb father who was always so goofy, who then had to have, you know, mom figure out what to do, or the housewife who was so unfulfilled that she kept getting into harebrained kind of things. So what they want to go back to isn't even really reflective of what life was like, but the way in which certain people, certain gatekeepers wanted people to think. So the nostalgia isn't, it's kind of like the sleigh rides. If you'd been in one, why would you think that that was what everybody should do? It's, again, a romanticized view of the past. And I think that some of that origin or some of what is driving that romanticism is because modern people don't know how to cope with the present-day struggles. Right? If you go to an evangelical church or if you're not involved in the Christian faith, uh, maybe you're given some, some basic gospel message 
But unless you have a full-orbed view of the Christian life, how do you cope uh, with marriage struggles or life struggles or children who are leaving the faith? What tools might you have if you're outside of what we would call Christian reconstruction? And so I think that looking to the past is one way that people cope with not having biblical answers. They don't know that there are solutions that Christian leaders can go to uh, in the scripture for how to build the future. And so the coping mechanism is romanticizing the past, this shortcut to feeling emotionally uh, excused for maybe how things aren't going as well as you'd hope they go. And there's no real way to advance if you're looking back, because one of the things that's true is that different times called for different things. And so before you had radio, you might have circuit riders who would go around and visit various people and hand out tracks. Well, that would be a very ineffective way to do things today. So if you're not looking at advancing the kingdom with the tools God gives you, and you're looking at the present with an eye to the future, you're going to oftentimes come up with solutions that worked one time, but don't necessarily work today. Because the future seems dark or complicated or difficult. And so we've relied too much on those past solutions. One other thing that I think is done is, you know, we kind of cherry pick examples about the 1950s or, or that. But here in my realm, we see the same thing happen uh, in Christian education today. There is a movement, and I know Dr. Rushdini was against this as well, a movement to even romanticize intellectual movements that may not even been Christian, right? Go back to Greek thought or go back to, to Roman thought um, and have a, a classical view of the world. And that is going to give us the solutions for our future. Uh, you, you can see the modern movement of classical education really appealing to those of us who are striving to put a, a worldview together based on what's already been accomplished. You know, somehow Plato or Aristotle is going to give our kids some kind of worldview to build the Christian future. And it really misses out on the fact that the Christian worldview, uh, not only is it future-oriented, but it's all-sufficient. We don't need to go back and look for answers in any other system, in any other scripture, in any other circumstance, because the Lord, his kingdom, his church, his spirit is with us now. And it's giving us direction and leadership now. And I think that is very intimidating that that could be on your shoulders. There can be a decision, a, a relationship, a job, a ministry that the Lord is calling you to take today. Um, and you could easily be missing that by looking at yesterday. And oftentimes, I think, Steve, this has to do with the fact that people come to faith or believe they've come to faith when in actuality they may be in the process of conversion, but they're not converted. They like the ideas. They're, they're sure that they're wild ways of their youth. They have to put that behind. And then somebody presents a very outward, works-oriented kind of display of what it means to be a believer. And the problem is they don't learn God's law. The problem is they don't know how to apply it. They don't view even biblical history from the point of view was who was being obedient and who was not being obedient. And so they end up with 
no tools with which to cope and do things. And then they may think that, well, Christianity doesn't work. Well, in many cases, it's not been tried. But more than that, if the Holy Spirit isn't guiding someone, they will go for the more irresponsible path that says, I just wish it was like the way it was 20 years ago. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Part of this nostalgic thinking is a lot like a seeing or imagining a golden age in the past. Right? I, as a traditional liturgical Anglican, have people who come into our tradition thinking that there was some like golden age of the church where everybody wore their vestments just right and all the gospel theology was perfect, all the books were without error. Uh, but there really was no golden age uh, because there's always been sin. And it really is part of our problem as humans is we're always trying to get back into Eden, trying to lower our standards to get back into the garden and forgetting that the Lord has promised us something that is greater than Eden, right? So Eden and its sinlessness is nothing compared to the greater glory that is coming in Christ's kingdom. And Eden was created and finished. Uh, the kingdom is without end. The kingdom is something that you have been invited to participate into. And it is going to be uh, when heaven and earth become one. And it's going to be a true golden age, not in the past, but in the future. A lot of folks who you know, think eschatologically have a very pessimistic view of the future. You know, they look at the last 100 years or they look at the newspaper and they think, well, it can't really get better. And so they settle for their own Eden, this cherry-picked vision of the 1950s or the early church or some classical period, not realizing that the true golden age is that of the kingdom of Christ coming in the future through the work of his faithful people. So there's really no space, no time, no use for nostalgia if we're building a kingdom that's better than whatever has existed. Exactly. And remember, Eden had work. The pattern that we get in the commandment to rest is to rest one day in seven, which means you're supposed to work the six days preceding that seventh day. And rather than say the better Eden happens when we die and go to heaven, I think if we're really going to embrace the idea of bringing the kingdom of God, have it being in earth as it is in heaven, that we will have eyes to see the advancement of God's kingdom. I mean, for all those people who want to bellyache about social media, because of social media and the internet, I'm able to conduct classes with people in Africa and in Central America. And I don't have to travel any further than from my kitchen to my computer. So we can take the progress and the technological advances that God has brought and use them to build the kingdom and not say, well, we can't do it this way because that's not how they did it in the fifties. Mm, yeah, no, and it's true. And I think that inside, you know, in our hearts and our, in our spirit, we're all kind of longing uh, for something that's greater than the present, right? We all imagine something. There's this inward desire or inward bend to have a better reality, but it's not, in the Christian perspective, towards the past, right? You naturally want a desire and idealism for something perfect because you're created for, you know, heaven, for glory. 
And so I think if, if you're one of those folks who gets caught up in the nostalgia over the good old days, you shouldn't hear this, this conversation as kind of a, a critique of, of your thinking, but rather that you should take and harness those desires, that inner idealism, and see that focusing on the past uh, through the dross and human fallacies is not really the intention of that desire, but you want to build something for tomorrow for your children. And one of the things I like to encourage is a multi-generational interaction. You know, the Bible talks about the older men and women should be discipling the younger men and women and boys and girls. But there's a flip side benefit to that. When you hang around with people who are younger, sometimes by 10, 20, 30, even 40 years, you get to experience what somebody who is eager to serve the kingdom of God how opportunities look through their eyes. And I like being around young people who get it because they come up with ideas and they have ways of approaching it that probably would never have crossed my mind. But by having the wisdom of somebody who can say, this is my experience in terms of obedience and disobedience, and then the expectation of victory that a lot of young people have in terms of really understanding what the kingdom is all about, it makes for a great combination. And we won't have to look back for the old days. It would be like, today is good. What's the best time to live? Right now, where God has put you. (laughs) Yes. Well, and I I think you're hitting on something that a lot of Christians today need to pay attention to is that young people, especially uh, what we call millennials, have a great deal of of hope for the future, whether they're Christian or not. I'm constantly amused on Facebook of the critiques of uh, this new young congresswoman, Acacia Cortez, uh, OCA or AOC. AOC, yes. This this young woman who's constantly critiqued for her harebrained schemes, but she's developed uh, really quite a following. And it reminds me very much of the, uh, the other very liberal Senator from Vermont, uh, Mr. Sanders, and how he was able to gather a group of young people who have these idealisms. And it reminds me of, of Dr. Ron Paul and how he had these idealistic views and he was able to gather a great group of, of young people. And so all across the spectrum, whether you're what she calls herself a socialist or libertarian like Ron Paul, that people are captivated by big ideas. And ironically, in part of this this new uh, plan, this new Green Deal, there is plans in there for how to deal with that, that horse excrement that Rushdie was worried about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that that vision... Uh, that idealism for the future is what captivates young folks who are not settling for the present or the past, but they want their lives to be sent for something more. They still have 80 years on this planet and they want it to be well lived. Um, Even if a lot of them aren't thinking biblically or generationally, Christians have an opportunity to come in here and fill that idealism with the biblical mandate of building a kingdom that's much greater than any communist or socialist utopia, but one of personal liberty, of Christian freedom, of advancement technologically. The solutions are within those 66 books, and we just need to cast that vision before the young folks and quit getting caught up in rebuilding the 1950s. Exactly. 
And we should look at what idealism is. Idealism is the pursuit of an ideal. And it really does matter what your ideals are. They can be very satanic. They can be very self-aggrandizing that doesn't really care about other people. So we have to understand that the Bible gives us the ideal. When we say the Lord's Prayer, we're basically saying, God, we want your will to be done everywhere, here on earth, just the same way it's in heaven. And because there's this perpetuating conflict of interest, men against women, young against old, haves against have-nots, the common ground we have is that we all know that there is a God, and we all know what right and wrong is, and we've got to get better at getting into the world of people and and letting them know that we know that they know, but not doing it in an unkind way, doing it in a way that our ultimate goal would be to see that person turn from his or her sin and then have the opportunity to live here and now within the grace of God. Yes, and I can't help but feel, you know, in this kind of nostalgic thinking, looking back, that we're trying to save or preserve a life that's already been lived, right? That is trying to bring back a life that's already been spent for people who've already lived. And our Lord had very specific words about that. He said, who attempts to save his life will lose it. And so we shouldn't look to the safety of nostalgia, but rather risk it and lose our life for the sake of the kingdom. Look, looking forward to the building of the kingdom by giving up our life, not the safety of nostalgia. And then the funny thing is, earlier, I guess it was this year, or maybe even a little bit last year, I can't remember exactly when, but there were these fires in Northern California that wiped out an entire town. Interestingly enough, that town was named Paradise. But there's nothing left of Paradise. And uh, I got to talk to a couple of women, homeschooling moms, who pretty much lost everything. But they weren't depressed. As a matter of fact, it was, I was a little jealous of how their whole demeanor and their outlook was because they appreciated that the real had remained and the rest was just stuff. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't like our stuff, but they had the opportunity to have all that taken away, but they were grateful that none of their family died. And Mm -hmm. yes, they had headaches with calling insurance and dealing with FEMA and all that sort of thing. But there was this view. It wasn't even an optimism. It was a peace that passed understanding. I kept saying to them, you're a good example of what that phrase means. Yes. Well, and yes, and you got to see, you know, the, the flip side of our Lord's words about, where your treasure is, there is your heart is also, you know, they got to, once their treasure is taken away, it reveals, you know, where their heart is. Um, If their demeanor had been anything else, it would have revealed where their, where their heart was. So the Lord uses these type of situations to move us away from our clinging to the things and the ideas of the people of this world uh, and to reveal himself anew. I think there's a story very similar to what you're describing. I can't remember if it's Charles or, or his brother, one of the Wesley brothers, the people come to the church and he's in there praying and they say, Reverend Wesley, Reverend Wesley, come, your house is on fire. And they go back to find his house and it 
was was lost. And they said, Reverend Wesley, what do we? What can we do for you? And he says, Praise God, because I have one less thing to worry about. You know this <laughs> <laughs> this idea that the possessions, while they're important, and as good Reconstructionists who understand the covenantal blessings, we recognize that God is uh, using possessions as a way to grow His kingdom. But it's His kingdom and the King that are at the top and the most important parts. We can't be so stuck in the earth that we don't allow the kingdom to come and penetrate and plant and grow because we're holding on to this little piece of dirt still. Right. It takes a long time to build things, and it happens really fast if a fire goes through to destroy it. Mm. That shouldn't give us reason to say, well, it's not worth it. The eyes of faith, the Holy Spirit within us tells us it's so worth it, and instead of having this inflated view of ourselves that says, well, we have to see it all realized, we should appreciate the fact that we are minor players in this bigger story, and our character is written in and out of the script at God's will. But at the other end of our time here, there are things that, as the song goes, we can only imagine, because the promises of no sin no death, are things that I can't fully appreciate, but I can certainly long for. Absolutely. And it's a kind of a a cathedral mindset, as uh, Dr. George Grant would describe it, that in the old days, they would have to spend generations building a church. And imagine how silly it would be to long for the good old days before the cathedral had a roof or before the cathedral (laughs) had a furnace. Uh, It may have taken 300 years to build this magnificent church, But the best day of the cathedral was the day that it was finished, the day that it got to be used. It wasn't, you know, the 50 years where we had to go outside and use the outhouse a mile away or something like that. It is the future that we're looking forward to in building the cathedral, the kingdom here on earth. Well, I hope people will think about what we talked about and reflect on what's so good about their good old days and have an eye to the future If you're interested in the series I talked about, once again, it's Our Threatened Freedom, A Christian View on the Menace of American Statism, and he goes all over the map exposing that, and then these radio broadcasts that the the essays were taken from. So you have any recommendations, Steve? Yes. As as I was getting prepared to talk here, I read through uh, the first epistle of of St. Peter. St. Peter just reminds us that we have a hope or an inheritance, and it's meant to be spent and to use into our future. So let us heed the words of the apostle and, and plant for the future, not get stuck in the past. Sounds good to me. Well, thanks, Steve. Once again, I always like talking to you about these things. And Steve's one of those younger people that I like to hang around with who keep uh, me having a vision for There are new ways to do things. And so I appreciate that, Steve. Well, thank you, Andrea. I enjoyed our call. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.